Hey, welcome to the CEO Anonymous podcast with Pradeep Sangha, a captivating platform designed for CEOs, business owners, and entrepreneurs like you. Our goal is to provide insightful answers to your burning business or personal performance questions. So join our panel of experts as they share their powerful wisdom and expertise. We greatly appreciate your participation. And to submit your questions, simply go to askperdeep.com. Now let's get to the show and delve into the heart of today's question. Welcome back to another episode of the Business Brothers Podcast. My name is Pradeep Sangha. And I'm Harjit Sangha. And guess and what? We are the oh, Business on, Brothers. You that up. <laughs> <laughs> right? Brothers never in sync. This is going to be an interesting conversation today. Uh, we have an awesome guest coming on uh, live here pretty soon. This gentleman has been in, I'm just going to say, the nitty gritty and dirty when it comes to family businesses and, and dealing with the fun stuff, but also the nasty stuff that comes along with it. So we're going to have some fun today with... Phil Christenfeld here. He is a family business advisor and mediator. He's got the lovely task of helping people get on the same page. So, Phil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Great to be on. Yeah, yeah honored to have you, Phil. Yeah, Phil, I'm excited to have you on here because you know you're the guy, and we've had some good conversations about this. You're the guy that we bring in to uh, you know you're like the special forces when it. When, <laughs> when, <laughs> When it comes to uh, things going sideways and family businesses not going the way that uh, they're meant to go, and you know relationships fall apart, businesses, lawyers get involved, it gets nasty. I'm sure you've seen it all, and we want to hear about it. But you're the guy that comes in to help calm things down, right, and to bring people back together. Yeah, you know, pretty. I've told people a bit of a firefighting job, you know, working with other advisors, you know, guys like yourself, accountants, uh, lawyers, especially the longtime family lawyers that don't want to dance in that cesspool of conflict. Um, I sort of get pulled in to smooth things over so the process can continue on, sometimes as part of the process, and sometimes it's a bit of a hit and run, um, but it's never usually as easy as it sounds. But I, I, I tell people that I get called in to deal with the stuff that nobody wants to deal with. <laughs> I mean, there's no nice way to say it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's why I say the special forces. But let's get into this. You know, we this is a serious topic, and all and all joking aside, right? We joke about it here because it's there's a little bit of comedy, and we need that. But things things get nasty, Phil. Right? Yeah, they and, do. And what do you see? Like, if we were to say you know, families not working out or situations going sideways. What do you think are the biggest causes of that? Well, it's, it's really, I mean, just about all of the issues can be dialed towards, to, towards communication or lack thereof. Um, communication in a family business is so much more important because it's got to start young and early. You know, it's got to start, I mean, there's so many, you know, those of us who are students of the family business dynamic, you see things where kids at 12 years old are included in family business meetings, you know, meetings with the family members, with the shareholders, to begin to indoctrinate them. It becomes about setting expectations and correcting offsides early and often, Hmm. you know, 
And, and I can't stress that enough because most of the time when I'm dealing with that next generation that just aren't playing nice and aren't getting along, the, the bad behavior of the past, and hey, we've all done it, present company included, I'm sure, um, it was never corrected. Mm-hmm. It was just never, it was never addressed. It was never called out. No one was ever called out. It was allowed to, to manifest. And it generally leads to bad behavior when their siblings working together. So dialing it back to the communication is, is usually one of my first steps. Like, how did we get here? We're in a bad place. How did we get here? How do we fix this? And how do we not get back here again? Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because how do we not get back there again? Because I'm I'm sure a lot of us have gotten in the situation where we think we fixed something and then it just creeps its nasty head back up, right? Yeah, I, I mean someone once referred to family business as a tire fire. Some of them burn for 10, 12 years, you know? Um, and you never fully extinguish it. And that's what we want to avoid. Mm, interesting. So, Harj, I don't know if you have any questions, but I got a ton of questions for Phil here. I, I do, and uh, Phil, I just wanted to, to kind of start off with the phrase that uh, you know we typically say in family businesses that succession planning—it's um, a process; it's not an event. So, from your earlier comment, it sounds like maybe most oftentimes you're brought in kind of near the tail end when things start to unwind to a point, uh, or almost a boiling point or breaking point. Do you see opportunities where you've been brought in or have you been brought on on the earlier stage where families kind of sense their turmoil and contentiousness and, and maybe bring you in early so they can avoid that, avoid the pitfalls? It's or is that kind of one of the things question. where you just say, wait till things blow up? And that's yeah. normally when you're brought in. It's a great question, actually, Harjeet, because like I've got a few clients now where I'm in in prevention mode. You know, we, uh, in particular, a, a client in the agriculture business I've been working with for seven or eight years. Uh, and what triggered them was they started getting some exposure into when family business goes bad. They had to deal with a brother who had a, a substance abuse problem, who was a partner. They had to deal with that mess. So from a family and an emotional side, it was tough. But from a business side, it was a big challenge. And then along not long after in bumping their life insurance, because, you know, farmers, you know, they're asset rich. So all of a sudden the value of their land goes up. Um, One of the brothers was determined to have some kind of rare cancer Mm. and he passed away shortly after. And my role there is to keep these guys happy and together. So there's really minimal, minimal conflict work. It's just to be that outsider that sort of rudder that can, you know, am I being crazy because I think this, this, and this, and my brother, this, this, and this, I have to bring them back. So it's really a prevention. It's really in preventive mode. There's no, there will be a, a um, an event, a, a, a sales event at some point. I don't know how far down the road, but there'll be a sales event because, uh, you know, builders want land and we're not making too much more of it. And, when that happens, how to manage the emotions around it. You know, that uh, I know you guys deal with, you know, in terms of brokerages and selling businesses, there's a massive emotional component that just doesn't always come up to the surface. So it's, it's about managing the expectations to prevent the conflict. So yeah, there, there are some proactive clients, I call them, where we're doing succession plans, we're doing shareholder agreements, we're, we're plotting through rather than 
meet at dad's lawyer's office and sign this. They're, they're, they're invited into the process, not being told what the process was. And here's where we are. Bring your pen. Interesting. And Phil, I got a question for you. So how do you, how do you start those conversations or how do you get people to come to the table and have conversations when they don't want to, when they refuse to communicate? You know, that's a great question, Pradeep, because what I do then is I put on my mediator hat. And one of the things we do in a mediation where people are, they're just not happy to be there. They're not happy they're in a room with somebody they don't want to be with. Whatever the case is in the mediation, whether it's state mediation, um, property, property mediation, anything, no one wants to be there. I, I hate to say there's a, there's a little tool we call it our BATNA. Best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Really, the question is, what does this look like if we don't fix this today? And that will usually bring the naysayers and those that don't want to be part of it on side most of the time. Most of the time. Those that don't want to participate and don't want anything to do with it, you know, it's it's sometimes you tap out. And you come back at it another time at another angle. You know, you just can't have that. In my role, you can't have that stubborn. You will see my way and I'm not leaving until you do attitude. It just doesn't work. Because mm. then yeah. you get to find whatever you want, get out of my office, whatever you say. And then there's no commitment. Yeah, we see that quite, yeah. quite often, the, the stubbornness, the hard-headedness. I've, I've come across this a few times. What do you? What are your thoughts on families who use, let's just say, uh, non-trained mediators, for example. They use people in their family network or friends to help mediate the conversation. What I've found is that it actually makes things worse. It, it can because, A, they're not trained. But, but again, if it's a trusted family friend who's been in business, sometimes it can at least begin the conversation. Um. But usually, and forgive me for being a generalist and even a bit sexist, because I don't mean it that way, but that person you're talking about, Pradeep, is usually one of dad's guys, mm. right? I mean, you know, dad's buddy who's an accountant, dad's buddy who's a financial advisor. You know, he knows this stuff. He, he can help us. As that next generation, that's still dad's guy. You know, nobody's really, truly, you lose true neutrality. When you bring that type of person in. Yeah. In our language, we like to say that people that come in there, everybody has their own bias, right? Everybody has their own thoughts. And it's, especially if you've been part of the family for a while, I believe that you have some, there's some kind of vested interest on one side or the other side. In our language, we say people like to add the masala, which means spice to things, right? They like to add on their own little two cents and, and spice to it. And as, you, as a mediator yourself, I have to ask you, how do you stay neutral? Like, how do you really communicate the message between the two parties without putting your own spin on things? Or do you put your own spin on things to get the message across? You, you, know, you know, when you're really, truly dealing with a dispute between two sides in a family business, let's say, you know, confession time, I generally have my own opinions of who's right and who's wrong within the first 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> but I'm not... I'm not there to give them my opinion. Uh, I'm there to help them understand each other. 
So the way I try and explain it is you've got two people who are this far apart. Slowly, we got to bring them a little bit closer together. You know, and that might mean um, a lot of active listening. You know, like like I, I explained it to somebody once who'd never been in mediation and was terrified. I said, you ever watch the parliamentary challenge? The parliamentary channel? And, and I said, who do they talk to? Well, they always talk to Mr. Speaker. I said, right. So they're not calling Mr. Speaker a jerk. They want to call the other guy a jerk, but they said, Mr. Speaker, <laughs> that guy is wrong. Okay. I'm the Mr. Speaker. So people are directing the conversation to me. The other person's job is to make sure they listen. My role is to create a safe, neutral space and make sure that each side is being heard. That often leads to some kind of a breakthrough because most mediations are a become a negotiation. You know, okay, if you get this, what, what do they get? Mm. And we begin, but that doesn't start out that way. You got two people who don't, don't really like each other, and I'm being as polite as I possibly can be. They don't want to be there. They're under, they're a gear against their, their will generally. Um, and they have to be, they have to hear one another without talking to each other because the emotions of talking to each other is a barricade. So that's really, I hope that answered that because that's really the role of the mediator. I just say, watch the parliamentary channel and see what the speaker does and wonder who the hell wants that job. <laughs> okay. He's got to get a bunch of adults who are supposed to behave and be, know how to behave to behave. And they all yell at him all day long or her. That's really the role of the mediator. Interesting. So, Phil, I got a question to kind of extrapolate on that. So, it sounds like in your role, in your profession, to really be successful, you got to be a really good listener and, and be able to, you know, to bring, you know, individuals who probably have opposite feelings for each other, um, you know, to an agreement. But what other skill sets do you need to be successful in, uh, in the work that you do? Well, I, I mean, I've taken some extensive training in, around family business dynamics. Through uh, I'm a designated FEA family enterprise advisor, which is a newer designation in the last dozen or so years. And there was a whole lot of training around, aside from the empathetic, I'm a nice guy, I want to hear you, please tell me. Aside from the soft spots, there's some technological steps in getting through the journey of succession. And to your point, it's it's what's the other expression? It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. It's not... It may culminate in a transaction, but it's not a transaction. It's a it's a it's an evolution, and um, so there was a lot of training around that. It was about a year long training through UBC, believe it or not, right in your backyard, and um, it focused all on the multidisciplinary team. So I've been trained on how to work with you guys with a difficult client. How do we work together? How do I work with? Um, uh, a legal team that may have to be drafting a, an extensive shareholder agreement. So quarterbacking and being part of that multidisciplinary team is a real key value. You know, what they say in this world, know what you don't know. So if we go in an area that I'm not sure of, I'll tap in the, the expert. You know, I'll tap in the lawyer to come in and say, let's have a meeting and talk about this and keep it focused. I love that analogy, the quarterback um, perspective of it. So from apart from the lawyer and accountant, what other professionals would you be bringing in to kind of help support the, the mediation process? Well, I, I mean, in dealing with a business or family business or partnership, always valuations often play into 
you know, and as you know, in the valuation world, what it's actually worth and what everyone thinks it worth, they're never the same. Um, so, you know, there's valuation processes that have to be done. There is sometimes in engaging, especially with next generation, we're engaging a legal team. It's amazing how many of those next generation, they don't have wills, they don't have power of attorneys, they don't have, they don't have a lot of their own personal stuff in order either. Um, I, I, I mean, not, not to share too much, but I'm working with a, a family business that does not have a shareholder agreement in place because one of the partners, she's in a really bad marriage and her sibling doesn't want to do a partnership agreement. If he's just, if she's going to end her marriage and create an entire legal storm that will fall on the business. And I've seen where that's happened as well. We've got, I've got worked with another client where one of the family members, he loved getting married. I think he was on a third <laughs> time, you know, uh, the last divorce he had um, cost the company, you know, quarter of a million bucks, forensic accountants, you know, a woman scorned, they say, doesn't, you know, she didn't take things well. Auditing the, auditing the business, court-ordered audits, court-ordered forensics. Um, so we just added a clause in the agreement. Any shareholder who is unmarried at the time of signing must have a prenuptial agreement satisfactory to the corporation prior to their wedding date or will have deemed to have forfeited their shares. So next time he wants to get married, he better really love her because either he's going to get a prenuptial agreement or he's going to forfeit millions of dollars, sell back, not lose, but he's going to have to sell his shares back to the company who will no longer be a shareholder. That was one of the harshest things we had to put into an agreement. But for him, he quietly said how he was delighted it was in because he wanted a prenup, but now he says when he talks to her, and I don't know how it worked out, I wasn't invited to the wedding if there was one. <laughs> but now he says to her, um, if I, if you, we don't have a prenuptial agreement and I marry you, I lose my share of the business. So if, if his bride-to-be can't acquiesce to that, then maybe he shouldn't marry her. You know, again, harsh and it goes personal, but family business is personal. Yeah, that's a tough one because prenups are always touchy as it is. <laughs> you know, there's that that's I've seen but some. You know, but people who have had to ask their future spouse for a prenup, I, I read a, a, a series of articles that talked about how much easier it is. If somebody else externally demanded that they have the prenup, you know, hey, honey, it's not me, it's them. Mm -hmm. It's not me, it's the lawyers. It's not me, you know, because try and extract some of the the hurt out of it because it's hurtful. I mean, I would agree with that, Phil. You know, having a prenup myself, um, I'm on my second marriage. Don't plan to, to have any more after this. But right. I mean, there they are delicate conversations to navigate around. And I think having it from the opposite lens or perspective does make it a little bit easier. Of course, they're 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 not simple. They do involve emotions from both sides. But um, I think from they, the angle that you approach is it's probably one that probably goes softer in the conversation. And they have to be fair. Absolutely. You know, I, like I, I was part of a discussion that was working on a prenup that was not fair. And I said, I'm out. 
I don't want to be part of this. They said, what do you mean? A prenup is there to protect, not to screw somebody. It's like Mm -hmm. buying insurance. And if your thought process around a prenup is to give it to the other person, if something goes bad, I'm out. That's not what it's intended to do. It's there to preserve the family wealth within the bloodline. But if the value of your shares have gone up dramatically, she's entitled to half of that. No different than if you bought a house and the house is worth double. Your marriage ends. You're you're giving her half of that or him half of that upside. Uh, it has to be fair. Yeah, I think on that point too, I think the business also needs clarity in terms of, you know, if there is an unfortunate breakdown in marriage, where does the liquidity come from, right? And it could be simply stated in the shareholders agreement that the liquidity comes from outside the business to make it fair, right? So at the end of the day, yeah, life insurance could be personal investments, real estate, but, you know, to, to kind of force that liquidity event upon the business could actually, you know, position it in an unfavorable way to not succeed in the future, which would be detrimental to, to both parties. So, I mean, done right, done correctly, done fairly, it, it can be a really enhanced tool to, I think, even you know, maximize the value of the business and provide kind of a level of comfort between the two individuals, the two spouses. Yeah. No, uh, fairness above all, as far as when things like that have to be brought into conversation, if it doesn't, if it isn't dealt with a fair hand, it's going to go bad. I, you can you can guarantee it. I'm, I'm going to circle back to something that you said before, Phil, when you were talking about negotiating and, and mediation. How how closely tied are those together? Does a trained mediator should they have negotiation skills? Is that part of the program? Is that part of the training? Um, and are there mediators out there that are just strictly about mediation and, and bridging communication rather than negotiating? You know, sometimes some would say it's there's no difference. Um, the different to me, the difference is mediation is understanding why we're at odds, right? I, I mean, why are we at odds? Wrongful dismissal, as an example. Let's pull it a little bit away from the family business and the family dynamic. Wrongful dismissal. I've been terminated from my job at 20 years. My company gives me eight weeks and I've got a mental health disability. I sue for wrongful dismissal. Do I want to repair the relationship? No. I want to be treated fairly. I want to be treated fairly plus a little more. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that really, you know, you're going to a negotiation. Um, most disputes that I, I mean, I don't do family, ironically enough, working with family businesses. I don't do custodial separation, marital breakdown. I don't do any of that work um, because it's generally purely based on emotions. Um, whereas the mediation work I do, is, it's emotional, but it's emotional about stuff. And stuff is usually money. You know, it's like working with clients on the, dealing with an estate. When there's a mediation on an estate, I leave you the cottage and I leave you my, my car collection and you get my coin collection and you get my house. The only thing that's divisible equally is money. So if it's going to be things that are not going to be equal, someone's going to be offside. Mm-hmm. So... I don't want the cottage. I want the coin collection that dad said I could have. But what else am I getting to make sure it's equal? Boom. We're now we're now in a negotiation. 
Got it. It's not. And by the way, the, the negotiation, I missed an important step with a lot of mediations. When they move into that negotiation phase, people are separated out. Okay. We, we go into what, what we call caucus. Okay. And I think I have, oh, I do. I have one of my special mediator pens. Remember these pens? You guys might be too young. Remember these yeah, pens? I remember those. Oh, remember these them are, very vividly. These are, these are the coveted pens when you were younger. These are my mediation pens. Each party gets a different color. And I go room to room and start figuring out how we're going to negotiate. Slice and dice down into bite-sized pieces. Let them know this is what the process is going to be. And, and, and at the risk of, of squashing the whole excitement around this process, at the end of the day, a mediation is not non-binding. So we can spend eight hours. I, I worked with an insurance company. They were being acquired, and two of the partners were at odds. And I spent three days, 12 hours a day, in the boardroom, hammering out item by item. And it sucked. It wasn't fun. Uh, but but at risk was these guys were a couple hundred thousand dollars a couple hundred thousand dollars apart, and the buyer it was an eighty million dollar acquisition that was about to go down the toilet. So, what's it going to take? You know, and it took a while to get to that. It took two days to get to the discussion of what's this going to take. Mm. You know, sometimes, you know, you reach in your pocket and you think, I'll give you the hundred bucks. Just let's move on already, you know. <laughs> and, and sometimes, and you know, sometimes this particular case, it got really nasty and dirty because one guy was altering his commissions because he didn't want his ex-wife to claw it out of their settlement, you know, back into the marital discord. So he purposely did things so that she would get less. And it turned out with this whole purchase, his little game of making sure she got less, he got way less. So that's why I talk about fairness, fairness above all. Yeah, it comes around in some way, shape or form eventually. He tried to stick it to his ex-wife one way and this acquisition, he, 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 probably, lost, he probably saved about $200,000 of giving her. And I think he lost out on about $3.2 million. Oh, geez. In the acquisition. So be upfront, be honest, communicate with your partners, your, your, your family business partners, and your shareholder partners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's some really great, great advice there, Phil. And so, Hart, do you have any last questions here before we wrap up this episode? I do. And I think it's very timely that uh, we talk about Rogers, a very public family dispute. Phil, <laughs> I'm sure you've been answering this question from a lot of other individuals, but let's just say you were brought in in mediation for that uh, particular file. Where do you start with such a public facet of, of kind of family discord? Well, most fa <laughs> their issues started way before the public knew about it, right? Like, you have to assume before the public knew about it, there's been all kinds of stuff brewing below the, below the surface. Um, in this particular case, uh, the little that I know, and I only know what's been exposed to the public with newspaper articles and that sort of thing. I have no insider info, I promise. Uh, it, really it really came down to a point of law. Okay. Uh, the son, you know, did what he believed the law was on his side for what he was doing. 
His mother and sisters didn't like it because he was building his own board so he could run his own thing. And he also controlled most of the trust that controls most of the shares. So their reaction to not liking what he did was to begin legal action. And they ended up losing. The only people who who truly won, as, as you know, there's a whole lot of lawyers that probably just paid off their mortgages or bought cottages um, or, or, or reacquainted themselves with the new staff at their firm because they've been so tied up in this case for so long. But where do you start? Wherever your entree is, wherever you're let in, you start, you, you can only start by listening. Mm. You know, you can only start by listening. And sometimes, you know, I want to this carefully because there's the mediator's perspective, my perspective, but we can't work on creating resolutions that break the law, right? So, so we also have to factor in every letter of every law that applies at this time. So you really can't go rogue and say, all right, you know, let's meet, let's go for dinner. You know, we'll all just go for dinner and this will be okay. That would be great. <laughs> but, but if going for dinner and everything will be okay means you're going to sign off on something, whoa, that's where lawyers have to be involved. So he really, from what I could tell, he really came out ahead on point of law. He had the legal right to do what he did. You don't have to agree with it when the law is involved. You don't have to agree with whether it was morally bankrupt or whether it was nasty. It doesn't matter. The law says that that was his right to do. He exercised his rights under the law. And that ultimately prevails. The mediation creates communication. So maybe there's a tiny chance to salvage some of the relationship. Because there's going to be generations of Rogers descendants that are going to be shareholders in this for the next 10 lifetimes. So if we don't fix it, or at least mend some of the stressors, they're just going to manifest by the generation. We saw that with the McLean's, McCain's rather. Do you remember 20 years ago, the McCain family, the McCain brothers feuding, Wallace and Harrison McCain. Um, and the families broke apart. They broke apart the business. Um, the one side succeeded tremendously. The other side, not quite as much. You know, they were better together, but sometimes you just get so principled and stubborn, you just can't see it. Mm. I think well, thank you for sharing that. I'm talking to two part business partners. So, you know, you each, you know, in the traditional sense, you each bring a strength to the partnership. Sometimes partnerships are, I have a great idea and somebody else saying, I got a big pile of money I want to invest, but they're both bringing things to the relationship that the other one doesn't have. Yeah. That's what makes great relationships work. It does. Yeah. Especially, you know, hard test skills that I don't have and vice versa. And uh, you touched on something again, and I think this is a great topic or great way to kind of close this episode out is there's two things that are involved when it comes to mediation or disputes or resolution at the end of the day. And that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about coming to an agreement of some sort, like you said, bringing two people who are further apart or more than two people and bringing them close as close as you can, because maybe they're never going to meet you know, eye to eye, but they're going to get closer. And I think that's ultimately it. But there's two things at stake here. A, there's money, like you said, there's the assets. So all the monetary stuff or all the tangible materialistic stuff, but then there's something even more important. 
which is the relationships. And those are the things that I think people need to take a look at even further when it comes to disputes and, and mediation, because we're talking about lifelong relationships. We're talking about generational relationships, right? If Harj's kids, my kids, if Harj and I had a dispute, I'd hate it for our kids not to be able to get along because I want our bloodline to continue and those relationships to continue for their sake. So that's something to pay attention to. If you're listening out there and if you're hearing this and you're hearing Phil in terms of what he's talking about is to keep in mind that it's more than just money and the materialism, it's the relationships and that's worth more than the money itself. That's a great point, Pradeep, because the money's replaceable. The money comes and goes, as people will say, but the relationships are, when they go, they don't usually come back. You gotta fight, you gotta fight to preserve them in family businesses and partnerships and in any kind of estate disputes, you've got to fight for those relationships. That's the real victory. And that's a great way to close out, Phil. And so for those of you out there, if you're listening, if you are having challenges or want to prevent challenges, I highly recommend you reach out to Phil. So, Phil, where can people find you? Is there a website? Is there an email that people can reach out to you at? Yeah, my website is uh, transitionsgroup.ca, just as it's spelled, transitionsgroup.ca. And I'm like the easiest guy in the world to find on LinkedIn, uh, uh, online. I'm not hard to find. And if they can't find me, they can find you and you can redirect them, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Definitely. So, Phil, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Phil. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you, gentlemen. It was great, great to do this. And we'll definitely have you back on again, I'm sure, because there's a lot of stuff, a lot of questions still hanging that I have for you. So thank you for joining us. For those of you out there listening, thank you for tuning in. And uh, we can't wait till next time. time. Take care. See ya. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you got value from the show, we have one simple ask. Please go to your favorite podcast platform and hit subscribe. We'll see you next time.